For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. As part of the AZPM series, Arizona Addicted will examine the impact of opioid use on our community, from how it affects mothers and children to a program that is helping seniors avoid misuse of prescription pain medication. We'll hear first-person accounts from peers supporting each other through addiction recovery. And essayist Chris DeShiel looks at a short list of films that he feels accurately portray the addiction experience. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Hope Incorporated is there to help. That was the message I received on a recent Friday morning when I visited the Hope Incorporated offices on East Grant Road in Tucson. For those working to live an addiction-free life, receiving support from others who have shared the experience is vital. A quick chat or a text from a peer can be all it takes to avoid falling back into destructive habits. That's something that everyone at Hope Incorporated knows, because this peer-to-peer network is built on understanding. My name is Jeffrey. I'm a peer support specialist with Hope Incorporated. What does it mean to you to be a peer support specialist? It requires me being willing to give of myself freely to people, no matter what I have going on in my life or my situations. And... It's just an opportunity to give back because I've been down a path myself and being able to work with people and help them understand that it's people that can relate to what they've been through and have walked in their shoes before. That's what peer support means to me. When you're trying to build a rapport with someone, what's one of the first things that you find is useful to share about your experience? I share my, my history with the criminal justice system, and I was incarcerated for 17 years. I did two prison terms, went in as a juvenile, so... I try to paint a picture of what I went through to try to show them that I can relate to them. When people come to Hope and they're looking for help with their addiction issues, what do you think they're looking for the most? If they already have housing, I think the biggest thing that they really need is just that support. Someone to listen to them and be able to tell them I understand and validate their feelings. If someone calls you and says they're having cravings and they think that they're about to make bad decisions, what's something you might say? I will ask them where they are and see if they're willing to meet with me. And I'll go out into the community and be with them and practice uh, healthy coping skills with them and try to walk them down from wherever they're at. Where do you think you learned the most about coping skills? Working here. I never knew much about what coping skills were until I started working here. There were little things I did to get myself through. I never knew they were called coping skills, though. I thought I was just figuring things out. Well, what's an example? Well, an example is just being willing to talk to somebody, you know, coming out of my comfort zone and, and being vulnerable with other people. In this conversation, you're making it sound like if people need help, it's waiting for them. It's that easy. You just got to be willing to seek the help. The help is here. You mentioned that you faced incarceration. Was that when you acknowledged the fact that you needed to get help? Or what was there a key moment for you that made you think, I can't do this alone? My key moment was when I got out of prison in 2015. And I came back. I was incarcerated in Ohio. And I was in Phoenix coming down the escalator. And my wife and my three daughters were waiting on me. And that was my reality check because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And 
I looked at them four women sitting at the bottom of that escalator and I had to make a choice right then and there which road I was going to continue to take. Hi, my name is Daniel and I'm an artist. I have been using narcotics since I was 10 years old to try and hide what I was feeling. And I just continued on that path of using until I reached the age of uh, 37. And then I went to 12-step meetings and I, I also realized I had to be in recovery from my depression. What's the first thing that you think people need to understand about your situation? Um, many people have assumptions about me because I'm uh, pat piercings and tattoos, so I get a lot of judgment about that. I also get people who admire them, so I try and filter that out. And um, how it mixed into my addiction is that I was dealing with several different forms of abuse throughout my life. And it has generally affected me, and I've been embarrassed and shamed the fact that I have a mental, serious mental health problems. And hope came to me in the hospital. And I never heard about aftercare for depression because I had been deeply depressed my whole life. And now I, I take medications to handle that. But I, I just want those who are listening out there that this is just an experience is, uh, as part of my journey. Whatever comes up for me to deal with, I want to face it head on. And I very, very much appreciate hope. If you feel you're going to succumb to the craving, call the hotline or the warm line for hope. Someone talking to you may distract you long enough to let that craving pass. And it will pass. This too shall pass. Peer group member Leela also shared some of her experience with me. She agreed with Daniel that undiagnosed depression and anxiety fueled her dependence on drinking and drugs. For Leela, acknowledging that she needed help was difficult. I felt like I wasn't able to trust anybody. When I came to Hope, I ended up figuring out that there is help, and some people did have past where they understood what we were going through. Have you found yourself in the position of having to help others now? Yes. Um, there was a couple people around me recently going through the steps that I was going through before on trusting and communication and learning the surroundings, the boundaries to help them overcome their fears and trust issues the way I learned and opened that door to take the next step and grow. Just don't be hard on yourself. There's always different steps to change and ask for help. Can you give me something that you think is unique to women in dealing with these issues? I would say pretty much like the drinking or the using, a lot more females get raped and be more in harm's way. That's just one of the triggers that I think about not to use to have the stableness and the self-esteem. I spoke with Hope Incorporated peers Jeffrey, Daniel, and Leela. You can find out more about the behavioral health resources they offer in Pima, Pinal, and Yuma counties at hopearizona.org. And someone is always available to talk on their warm line at 520-770-9909. What would you do if you found out that you were pregnant 
while you were taking prescription painkillers or dealing with an opioid addiction. A study published by the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2014 revealed that one in five women in the United States have been prescribed opioid medication during a pregnancy. The impact this could have on unborn children is significant. Next, we'll learn about a local program that is offering these mothers help without judgment. This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya and narrated by Cheryl Gherkin. So you want to start with my story, basically? Okay. My name's Kelly. I have my 11-year-old Austin, our 3-year-old Noah, and then our almost, actually our 4-month-old today, Maverick. He's 4 months old. Kelly is holding Maverick in her arms. Next to Kelly sits her husband, Michael. He just got home from work. Their son, Noah, is in the living room with them, playing. Kelly had to have knee surgery in 2010, and then she started taking opioids. It was about a year and a half after my surgery that a family member had noticed I had been on the medication for quite some time and that that wasn't right. So she called the doctor. The doctor then made it to where I was no longer his patient. He didn't help me with any way to get off the medication. He just cut me off completely cold turkey, and I was left to my own devices to do to figure it out. Without a prescription for painkillers, Kelly went through withdrawal. Lay in my bed, vomiting, you know, cold sweats, not wanting to eat, not being able to eat or drink anything. You feel awful, and it can last quite some time. It's, it can last anywhere from seven days to two weeks. It was the beginning of a vicious cycle for Kelly, getting clean and then relapsing. In 2015, Kelly met Michael. He also struggled with opioid addiction. In 2016, they became part of a program at COPE, a nonprofit healthcare organization. You know, so we both know what it's like and, you know, what it's like to go through these things. And we've been each other's rock. It's been really good, actually. We both keep each other accountable. Despite being on birth control, in 2019, Kelly became pregnant. We don't really agree with abortion. But I got to be honest, it is a thought that crossed our mind because of us being both in therapy and of the things that you think about, like deformities and stuff. But the more research that we did, we found out there's a lot of people in our position and the babies turn out fine. Kelly and Michael's family is one of around 50 who received support in a new clinic at Banner University Medical Center. Here is Joyce Subrin, a social worker for the Women's Health Department at Banner Hospital. And we call it Moms Over Medicine. That's what Moms Clinic stands for, Moms Over Medicine. So we want the mom to know that she is the treatment for her baby. Subrin says pregnant women who come to the clinic have a lot of questions. Where can I go for that additional support? How do I, what medications are safe? What community partners can help me? When, how soon can I get an appointment? So when they come here, we're making those arrangements with them um, if that's their goal. You know, this is patient-centered. We just want to help them take the next steps. Mom's Clinic supports women on their way to recovery and motherhood. This approach goes beyond the traditional understanding of health care. They feel really alone and really afraid and really ashamed. Um, those are three really big things. <laughs> so if we can address one or more of them, I think women feel empowered and they feel more in control of their health care and more in control of their feelings and their thoughts and their emotions. Um, and all of those things help to reduce symptoms and um, help to build stability. Kelly learned about the clinic from a friend at COPE. And I started being seen at the clinic 
seen a few different doctors. They let me know, you know, what to expect, what was going to go on. I just kind of got ready for us to have Maverick. Maverick was born on September 27, 2019. Two days later, Kelly and her newborn son were transferred to a neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU, at Banner. There, they started neonatal abstinence syndrome care. Neonatologist Mo Bader, who oversees the program, was among those who took care of Kelly and Maverick. 80% of these babies will start showing signs and symptoms of withdrawal from the opioid. Newborns with neonatal abstinence syndrome can have fever, trembling, and diarrhea. They eat and sleep poorly and cry a lot. Taking care of babies going through withdrawal can be challenging. We used to admit them to the neonatal intensive care unit and start them on morphine. It takes a baby an average between three to four weeks to be weaned completely off morphine. The problem with this approach is it's commonly he will be away from his mother. In 2017, the researchers from Yale University School of Medicine and School of Public Health in New Haven, Connecticut, published a study. It suggested that newborns can go through withdrawal without medication, but only if the mother is with them. Banner Hospital takes advantage of this family-oriented approach. Many people were suspicious about the way we're treating these babies because historically we used to give them morphine every three hours. Give a baby 30 days, morphine every three hours, that's eight hours a day, times 30 days, that's 240 doses in, during the stay. And now we're telling them, you know what, no, the love of the mom is, could be as equivalent, if not better, than the medication. You cannot replace a parent's love by any other medication. Kelly says she also had concerns, but decided to give the program a try. That was a scary thought for me, too, because I have been through withdrawals my own, you know, without medication, and it's awful, you know, and to think about a baby that doesn't know what the heck is going on, that, you know, was just born, just came out of mommy's belly and, you know, is having these issues. I was excited about it, too, because, like I said, I knew he wasn't going to have to be on something else that he was going to have to come off of. And then I knew he wasn't going to have to be in the NICU for an extended amount of time because of this medication. Less than a week after Maverick was born, Kelly and Michael were able to bring him home. We just did what they told us to do in the mom's clinic and... Yeah, are you talking? Yeah, he's definitely healthy. <laughs> According to the Arizona Department of Health Services, about seven in every thousand infants are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Again, Joy Subrin. There's no boundaries to who's impacted by um, opi the opioid epidemic. They're first-time moms, they're fourth-time moms, they're professional women, they're um, they're single women, they're you know married women. They're, there's a wide variety of patients. The stigma around substance misuse doesn't help patients. That will probably always be on the back of my mind. Is that there for one woman that walks in the door? There may be two that are still afraid to call. To change that, the culture needs to change, Dr. Mo Bader says. Being addicted is not a moral flaw. It is a chronic disease. More important, what I notice as we progressed with our program, is that it's not enough to change how I perceive this woman. More important is to change how these women perceive themselves. And that's really one thing we're working on to empower them as much as we can. My biggest thing that I always, you know, I want to add is ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. I know a lot of people are ashamed. We're moms, so we're supposed to be, 
you know, up and ready at the crack of dawn and making the kids breakfast. And, you know, we're supposed to be this certain way. So for a mom to be an addict, it's like people think it's like the worst thing in the world, you know, but it, stuff happens. And but asking for help and doing what you need to do is the best advice that I can give. You know, we aren't bad people. We aren't, you know, I'm doing whatever I can to take care of my kids, you know. And because of this program, because of methadone clinics, suboxone clinics, I'm able to be there for my kids. And I'm able to be that mom that I want to be. That story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya and narrated by Cheryl Gerken. You can find links to COPE and the Moms Clinic on the Arizona Addicted page at azpm.org. Hollywood has always loved simple human drama, as well as glamorizing events that are torn from real-life experience. This has made addiction a frequently used plot device, but only rarely does a film dedicated itself to exploring recovery. Here's film essayist Christy Scheel with some insight. Movies about addiction have often resorted to sensationalism, and this, I think, is a symptom of our social attitudes about substance abuse. The stigma made it hard for films to be honest or compassionate when it came to this subject. The first popular success in this category was Billy Wilder's film The Lost Weekend, released in 1945, about an alcoholic, played by Ray Milland, going on a terrible bender and then suffering scary withdrawal symptoms. The studio didn't want to produce the picture, thinking it was too much of a downer, but it surprised everyone by becoming a hit and winning Oscars for picture, actor, and director. Alcohol, however, is legal, and to that degree, socially acceptable. When it came to other drugs, the film industry was more squeamish. For the most part, it just wasn't talked about. In 1955, when Frank Sinatra played a heroin addict in Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm, It caused a tremendous fuss, with a lot of people saying it should have been censored. As it happened, Preminger eliminated most of the stuff that made the original Nelson Algren novel so great, but that didn't stem the outrage. With the loosening of restrictions in the 1960s and later, drug use could now be depicted, along with a lot of other previously taboo things. But good, serious, realistic films about addiction have still been few and far between. In my view, it's because there aren't many filmmakers who understand what it's like to be an addict. And therefore, the films we usually get feel like views from the outside. But there are a few movies that I think really capture the experience of addiction, among which I have two favorites. The first is from 1989, Drugstore Cowboy, directed by Gus Van Sant. It's about a group of addicts, Matt Dillon plays their leader, that breaks into pharmacies and steals whatever opiate medications they can find. I was once a shameless full-time dope fiend. Yeah, me, Bob, the sweet mother's son. Me and my crew robbed drugstores. I had done them all, up and down the Pacific Northwest with pharmacies open to close. Didn't matter, except for technique. But don't get the idea it was easy. It's hard being a dope fiend. And it's even harder running a crew. The first thing Van Sant does in this film that most others hadn't dared to do before is to show how drug use can be pleasurable and fun. But it stands to reason. Why else would people start using? Drugstore Cowboy also depicts the adrenaline rush of evading the law and the excitement of risk-taking behavior. Some of the movie is quite funny, 
but it is a kind of gallows humor, and there are painful consequences eventually, as there are in real life. One of the great paranoid sequences in film history is when they have to get a body of a friend who is overdosed into a car while the apartment complex they're in is hosting a sheriff's convention. The film covers a wide emotional range that any person who's been addicted would recognize. There's even a bit of recovery for our main character near the end, but nothing comes easy. My other favorite is Requiem for a Dream from 2000, directed by Darren Aronofsky. This film, based on a Hubert Selby novel, is all about how addiction will drag you down to the bottom of whatever nightmare you never dreamed you'd have to go through. Hey, Ma. You want uppers? What? You want uppers? You're on diet pills, ain't you? I told you, I, I'm going to a specialist. That's what I thought. You, you make a croaker for speed, ain't you? Harry, are you all right? I'm going to a doctor. What does he give you, Ma? Does he give you pills? Of course he gives me pills. He's a doctor. What kind of pills? Uh, a purple one, a blue one, an orange I mean, one. like what's in them? The main character is played by Jared Leto his mother by Ellen Burstyn, and his girlfriend by Jennifer Connelly. All three of them suffer extremely frightening and degrading fates because of their absolute need to get more drugs. And unlike the usual cautionary film, Requiem for a Dream makes you understand how these people tick and how addiction becomes a destructive force beyond their control. So there have been a few good addiction films, but it's been almost impossible to find a decent film about recovery from addiction. There's Clean and Sober with Michael Keaton, 28 Days with Sandra Bullock, and a few others, but these films deal with the challenges of recovery only superficially. Why is this? Well, recovery is long, hard, and unglamorous work. It's not particularly dramatic. In fact, one of the main points of recovery is letting go of the need for constant excitement and euphoria. To really depict the process of taking responsibility for one's life, and gaining freedom from addiction, it would take a very special kind of movie, one that is yet to be made. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. The Pima Council on Aging, or PCOA, provides a multitude of programs to assist adults 65 and older. One of them is called Be Med Smart. It's a program that offers lectures and advice free of charge. I visited the Armory Park Senior Center one morning, and there I met Ruth, who was there to hear the lecture, but she had a story to tell. When I broke something uh, in my back, I didn't realize that what I was being given was pain meds, but then after I was in a physical rehab center for 36 days, and I, once I realized something was a little different, I began to ask what it was that I was being given, and I actually was being given seven different types of pain delineation or medication or relief, however you want to put it. I told them immediately that I wasn't going to do it anymore. And they said, well, what we'll do is we'll taper it. And they really were wonderful. This was in Bennington, Vermont. And they did exactly what they told me they were going to do. And it didn't take very long. It took five days. And then because I am very medication sensitive, a little bit of the tapering was all it took to put an end to it. So I'm very fortunate. I understand and know that now. Ruth's story is not uncommon for seniors who are undergoing pain management. They may not know exactly what each of their prescriptions are for or what happens when they combine. Jertha Sakobo, a prevention specialist with PCOA, 
visits groups all across Pima County as part of the Be Med Smart program. So with regards to opioids, as we get older, with our metabolism slowing down, uh, doesn't break down or process medication as well. Uh, the older we get, the more fatty tissue we have on and the less water content in the body. So there are medications that are water-soluble, such as get vitamin C as an example of a water-soluble medication. If we have a compromised kidney function, whatever we take is not clearing out, whether it's a vitamin, whether it's a prescribed medication, any substance, even a natural uh, products, supplements, plants, everything that we take has a chemical uh, makeup and the potential of, of uh, causing harm if it's not being cleared out of the system. We talked a little about street drugs and the, the availability to seniors, but what about the internet? We obviously encourage seniors to be uh, comfortable going online and, and using that to accomplish some of their life goals, but a downside might be the accessibility of drugs that are not being regulated. Right, exactly. A lot of people have their cell phones, they look up everything, and older adults are very educated. They want to know. The risk of accessing an online pharmacy or a sales uh, company that is selling illicit opioids can be high. There are lots of scams going on out there. And so I, I would tell someone, if you go online, Go to a site that ends with .org or .edu or .gov. Instead of .com. Yeah, the .coms will be selling you something that is not good for you. Above all, Jertha Sakobo and the healthcare professionals at PCOA urge seniors facing addiction issues and their caregivers to seek the help they offer without fear of judgment. There has been a stigma associated with the term addiction or with experience of addiction just because of how people have been treated historically. This prevents people from going for help, for going for treatment or asking for help. We want to reduce the stigma so people can see addiction as a disease, which it is, and uh, do not, not hesitate to ask for help. That's basically it, and save their lives. Pima Council on Aging can be found online at PCOA.org. And you can also find all the stories in the Arizona Addicted series from radio, TV, and the web, along with links to get in contact with programs and agencies that offer resources to those in need. It's all at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.